So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what we have coming up for you today. And all these guys walked out, really skinny, drug addict type guys with teardrop tattoos. I think these guys are criminals. From Bristol punk to renegade teacher to delivering aid, I meet the man who knows how to pack up a van. Plus, one piece of research showed that more than a third of 18 to 35 year old women said that they watched porn at least once a week. Alex Fox on how to get off without ripping anyone off. And Ollie Peart chats GPT. That's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And thank you for all the tremendous reaction we've had to my interview with Tamsin and Nathan last month. Um, All your personal feedback has been forwarded to them personally, um, but here is um, a broadcastable sample. Uh, Sally says, Ollie, I am currently being treated with ketamine, and the process now is far different from what Tamsin described because those of us using ketamine now have benefited from the experiences of our predecessors like her. This drug has changed pathways in my brain such that I know for the first time ever that I will pull out of even the deepest depression. It's been a miracle for me. Uh, Sally, that's great to hear. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Emil, as well, uh, says, Ollie, I was so grateful last episode to hear someone else voice an experience that I had during the first year of the pandemic. I have major depressive disorder and generalised anxiety disorder. And like Tamsin, when I heard people talking about how hard it was to be stuck at home with COVID or how they suddenly found themselves depressed and unmotivated, I just nodded. My daily life has been like that for 30 years. I finally felt like everyone else instead of being the person with all the problems. That was a personal silver lining for me at a time. And I will say that I miss that validation and commonality. Fascinating. Thank you, Emil. Um, Matt, though, did not enjoy the episode. Uh, he says, Ollie, I find it abhorrent that you would equate someone prescribed a drug by a doctor in a safe environment with a recreational drug user deciding to try something illegal and untested whilst in an environment where they're in charge of the care of others. A guy who works in the NHS who microdoses on an illegal substance for no reason is not the same thing as a medical prescription. Uh, Matt, I completely see where you're coming from. I don't know if you're a long-time listener to the show or not, but I will say we really do try hard here on The Modern Man to offer an open platform for people to share their experiences, a non-judgmental space, and sometimes we do package up contrasting stories um, as a way of helping an audience relate to a topic in a broad way and indeed comparing those stories themselves in their brains like you have. I don't think we were necessarily equating them as such. I think we were leaving listeners to decide what they thought. I mean, my favourite thing, I think, when I'm doing our interviews and going out meeting people is when I'm not quite sure what I think. But um, thank you for the feedback. I hope you're still listening. Uh, For those of you who do appreciate our style of content... 
uh, a reminder that we really do rely on your support to make this show. We are an independent production. We are funded solely by the advertising that we attract and your contributions. Um, you know, if we were a paper magazine rather than an audio one, you would part with a fiver a month for this, wouldn't you? If so, then please do buy us a beer. Head to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money. And our everlasting thanks goes to this month's new Beer Money donors, uh, Sally from Santa Fe, Angelica Vivas, Josh Kumi, Dan Wilson, Tom Young, Michael in Israel, Simon Buller, Charles Archibald, Ben Eaton-Price, MJ Withers, and especially Sarah in Chicago, who says, Ollie, I just sent y'all some beers. See, she, she must be genuinely American because she said y'all. Sorry for taking so long. I've injured my ankle and I'm laid up at home binging episodes and have realised I've never sent along my support until now. Thanks for the good times and great stories. Hey, Sarah, if it took a binge to realise that you'd never supported this show financially, maybe it's not so bad you buggered your ankle? Just putting that out there, just saying, maybe. Uh, Thanks as well to Stephen Bedford, who has increased his monthly contribution from £5 to £10. That's amazing. We notice when you do that, we get an email alert. Even if you're a long-time supporter of the show, if you can afford to increase what you send us, that would be incredible. Because obviously, you know, this is the time of year when some people cancel as well. They do a bit of a financial spring clean. So if you can afford to make up that gap and support us, please do. Um, you can always find the secure payment form or PayPal link at monmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just click beer money. Right, coming up in today's episode, you will learn what mid-journey is. You will learn how to create your own manga avatar. And you'll learn just how many nerve endings are in the clitoris. It's an ever-updating figure, apparently. Let's go. Okay, time for the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with a man I can exclusively reveal is not wearing his ear seeds right now. It's Ollie Pitt. Hey, Ollie. How you doing? I'm all right, thank you. You've got a kind of lumberjack look going on today. I'm uh, I'm ready to chop wood. Not a euphemism. Do you, for relaxation, chop wood? No, but I, I do have a book about it and how you should store your logs properly. And like in Norway and stuff. They store their logs in a way where they can create artwork. So they use the different colours of the logs to create like a face or mm. a scenic uh, landscape out of logs. We should do log trends one month. Because you know what? <laughs> I, I order logs and what I feel is desperately needed is a universal measurement of how many logs you need. Pallets are all different sizes, bags are all different sizes, storage is all different. Do you know what I mean? Well, whilst we're talking about that, there's there, there's new laws coming in, isn't there? You know, we have is to... We're gonna, we're, yeah, no, we're going we're gonna to have to really think carefully about the types of logs we use in our wood stoves. Because, oh, well, environmentally, yeah. Yeah, if you use too, you know, too much moisture in your logs, there's a problem. Logcast, the new show from Ollie Beards and Ollie Mann. Coming I'll listen soon. to that. But we're actually here to talk about ChatGPT. Ashley in Deptford tasked you last month with the challenge of doing something clever with mm. ChatGPT. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting one because genuinely, when I posed this challenge to you last month, I didn't know what ChatGPT was. I was no. like, that's missing a vowel. What's that? <laughs> now, a month later, it's everywhere. Like, I've read so many things about ChatGPT. I've heard it discussed on, like, everything from Blue Peter to the Today program. And yet, there's going to be part of the audience listening right now. Sorry, future people, but in February 2023, there is a portion of our audience listening to this now who don't know what ChatGPT is still. It's difficult to know how to approach this, isn't it? So I suppose, give us the 101 first. Do you remember last in, in the last episode, I, you, you didn't know what it was, like you've just said. 
and I had yeah. a bit of an idea about it and I said well you could kind of just ask it like uh, to, to write something for you and my example was an erotic novel of the two ollies you know doing stuff to each other on the back of a canal boat oh I'd forgotten that yeah that's where I left it so let's start with that and like just see what it would come out with now I did put that into chat GPT I asked it to do that but it said oh, I can't do that because that's rude you know oh really so I had to rewrite my prompt, which was write a short story about podcasters Ollie Man and Ollie Peer holidaying on a canal boat. This is unique text generated by Chat GPT. Ollie Man and Ollie Peer were two best friends and successful podcasters, known for their comedic takes on current events. Don't know where it got that information from. They had always talked about taking a holiday together and finally decided to rent a canal boat for a week long trip. The two of them set off early in the morning, excited to explore the picturesque countryside and quaint towns along the canal. They spent Which the f- canal? Where are we? Does it say? It doesn't say yet. They spent okay. the first day getting used to the boat and learning how to navigate the locks. It was a bit of a learning curve, but they soon got the hang of it. As they made their way down the canal, they passed by beautiful fields of wildflowers, charming little villages, and even a few historic castles. Why can't I shake the feeling that you're using this trend section as a surreptitious audition, as an audiobook narration? It goes on in that vein for quite some time, and it finishes yeah. off. The last paragraph finishes off. It goes. Then he bludgeoned him with the sledgehammer. He killed him <laughs> he with the lead pipe. <laughs> no, it finishes. It goes. As they set off back home, they plan their next holiday together. Maybe a road trip or a camping trip to a national park. But they knew wow. they would always look back on their canal boat holiday with fondness. Okay, so to answer the question, what is ChatGPT? So it, it's, it, it is an AI. It's, it's what's called a large language model. A, an AI that's been given, I mean, an unimaginable amount of information. It's actually been given pretty much the entirety of the internet prior to 2021. And it can, uh, you can ask it a question or a query and it will sift through all of that stuff uh, piece it all together using its AI and offer you back an answer in human language so it's unlike a sort of a Google response what are the best three wine bars in Leicester and it will go it will just give you a list of results this will instead say oh well there's a there's a wine bar here which has got this rating and da 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 but you could also go and visit this one which has got this that and the other and that kind of thing and is it written in that kind of flawless text that you just read out? I mean, the thing you just read out, right, it's bland, but it isn't grammatically flawed, is it? It sounds like someone writing an average thing. Yeah, it's definitely more relatable than getting a bunch of answers, sort of like a like a classified ad list like Google is. It's almost like someone is, is giving you a, a genuine answer. OK, so who owns it? Why have they done it? So it's, it's owned by um, OpenAI who they started off as a non-profit but uh, Microsoft have actually invested or are going to invest 10 billion dollars over the next few years in OpenAI wow. because of the success of ChatGPT which was released by OpenAI as as a free thing they sort of just put it out online just to see how people would use it and the response to it as well it shocked them it shocked everyone within the first week they had like a million users it's had 100 million users by January uh, and it's the fastest growing app in that time frame ever. Use the word app. Is it an app? 
Or is it just a website? Because I I, the only way I've used it, and I've used it once, is I typed chat GPT into Google to try and find the page, and it was on some weird academic-looking thing. Yeah. I didn't feel that accessible to me. It's not an app in that sense, as you go into an app store and you kind of download it. It is a web page. You can access it on your phone. What I mean by app is just like, it's an application. It is a tool. Yeah. Okay. But is it going to get more user-friendly? This month, Microsoft are launching GPT-4, which is the latest incarnation of uh, GPT, within Bing. So they're going to release it within search. Oh, wow. And also this month, Google have announced that they're launching BARD, which is their AI large language learning model, which they'll integrate with Google search. And it will fundamentally change how we use, you know, search engines. It's like the battle of search is back on. Like Binger back in the game. <laughs> if they do this, you know, it's like Ask Jeeves will be back. <laughs> I spoke with uh, Alok Jar, who's he's a science correspondent for the Economist, and he thinks it will become over the next few years properly transformative when it starts getting into things like law. Construct my defence for murder, <laughs> or more realistically, a parking ticket. I or, suppose. Or, yeah, or or help me do that. You know, like yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily mean you are you. It's definitely going to do it, like or, or all of it on its own. But if you're a doctor and you're like, mm, hang on a minute, okay, someone's got this tumor there. I tell you what, I'm going to do. I'm going to upload it to sort of a medical version of ChatGPT that's got all of that information. It will be able to make those connections instantaneously. That I mean, that's a really informative example, isn't it? Because as you say a doctor uploading it to a medical version, hmm. a version where you know that everything that's in it has been uploaded by doctors based on genuine examples. The problem with an open system is these things are only as good as the data that you put in, yeah. right? So this is everything on the internet with all the weird conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism and racism and so-called journalism that leans one way or another. I mean, how can you rely on it to give you a fact when what it's doing is scouring just everything? Yeah, at the moment you can't. Like and, and there are some um, examples of it just throwing out stuff that's just completely inaccurate and incorrect. CNET published a bunch of articles which they used ChatGPT to create, to write. And uh, a load of the information in there was completely incorrect. It was just all right. wrong. It, but, but this is the problem. It, it, it read as though it was, it was full of conviction and it was yes. put forward as fact. And I think a lot of people have got concern is cause, because it talks to you in this, sort of, this, this human way, it doesn't sort of say oh, I'm not really sure about this, but you could maybe look here or look there. It doesn't do that. It will always yeah. present it as fact. Like a rambling bloke in the pub, basically. Yeah, exactly. So if you are a journalist using this as a research tool saying, mm, can, you know, can you give me five leads on da-da-da-da-da or whatever, it will give you those, but then it's down to you to then research that and cross-check that. We've had an email actually from a man fan called Mark W who works for a qualifications awarding body. Um, and he says, I've got real concerns that the assignments that we issue could be cheated using these systems. Is there any way that plagiarism detection software could identify AI written assignments? At the moment, not properly. OpenAI have created something they've called ChatGPT Classifier. And the whole point of that is to see if it can work out what text has been generated by, by AI. At the moment, it can only identify like 25, 26% of AI written text. But at the same time, it, 9% of human text it labels as AI written. So it's not very accurate. It's really difficult. But one of the interesting things about this, like that is one of the concerns, like, you know, education establishments are like, well, people are going to cheat and all that kind of stuff. But then it's like, well, actually, maybe it raises a question of like, is, is the way that we, you know, moderate and, and, and grade students the right way to do it? So based on one essay and that kind of thing, maybe we should think of a more... You know, if, if their entire study 
period or, or, or the whole time they study is sort of boiled down to this one essay that they can just plagiarise using a, ch- a, a chatbot yeah. isn't there another way that we should be doing that or is there a way that we could use chat GPT within education like you know ask chat GPT to create a, an article and then you write a critique of it you know like so there's ways that we can use it as a tool if it's going to be something that's part of our future that is something we should probably start be talking about now I mean you were tasked with doing some clever things what clever things have you managed to get it to do so one of the things I, I learned that it was really good for is integrating it with another AI. So there's um, a, a generative AI. And what, we, what, it, what you mean by generative is like it, it, it basically creates something. You know, you know the ones that the AI that create images, right? Yeah, although I don't understand how that works. I've seen people tweeting pictures of like Muppets in Fallujah. Yeah. I don't know how they do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But what you can do is, it's a, the way that you create those, um, there's there's one called Dali, which uh, it is really simple to use. It is also an open AI project, but you just type in a prompt and it'll, it'll generate an image for you. But one of, the, one of the bigger ones and slightly more difficult or complex to use is one called Midjourney. And Midjourney uh, runs on, a, on a, a platform called Discord. Discord is basically a social network. Yeah. Right? And, and it's like a, a giant chat box that you've got. And you give it a prompt... So you do forward slash imagine, and then you write your prompt, Ollie Man eating a donut, right? Give me, give me, a, give me a picture of Ollie Man eating a donut uh, like, a, like a cartoon. And then you see, it, it'll, it'll put your prompt up there in the chat box, and you'll see all of these chats just f- flying through, flying through, flying through, and then it will start generating your image. And there's, like, there's hundreds of thousands of people using this, so you can see all of these images coming up all of the time. And then you oh, go back weird. and find your image. What what other images were up there? When you oh, there's all kinds there. of weird stuff. Like, but again, it's got it's got a sensor on it. You can't go, uh, do you know a, a naked Boris Johnson? Why the hell did that pop into my head? <laughs> you, <laughs> stuff that's you, front of your mind. You couldn't, hell. you couldn't do that, but you could probably do Boris Johnson in swimming chunks riding a. Yeah, beer. all right, I'm okay. Uh, so, like, but the reason Chat GPT comes into this is because to get the prompt right is quite difficult if you want a really good coherent image so you you write me an image prompt for the other thing exactly that's exactly what you do so that's what i did i asked chat gpt to create a prompt based on my my input and it gave me a prompt which was ollie man eating a donut with a nice big smile on his face and he's delighted and it's got a nice cafe backdrop and do it in a in a sort of a cartoony fashion that's okay so it knows that the visual ai will interpret that better yeah. Well, it doesn't know that I dislike donuts. Actually, the Hang only on. donuts that I like are British jam donuts. I'm not into American style donuts. They're too sugary for me. They make me jittery. Uh, so uh, I've sent right. I've sent you a picture, right, that I used uh, ChatGPT to create Ooh, in Mid Journey. That doesn't look like me. Who does it look like? Oh, that's so weird. It is that uncanny valley thing because it. Okay, what's amazing is that it is in a cartoon style, mm. and so that looks like an illustrator has done that for you, and that's amazing. But it's gone slightly wrong because the bloke who's eating the donut has his mouth open and the colour from his T-shirt is inside his mouth on his tongue. So that looks weird. That is weird, isn't it? Who does that remind you of? Is it supposed to be you? Who, who do you know that's got a ginger beard? Yeah, I see what you mean. You, yeah, but it doesn't look like you either. It's fatter than you. I suppose it does look like a composite of the two of us a bit. It's basically a fat me. That, that to yeah. me, looks like a fat version of me. And, and I think this is a perfect example of like some of the issues with it and, and why you've got to be clear. 
it's it's taken that prompt of Ollie Man. And if you search yeah. Ollie Man online, it's lots of pictures of us too. I'm yeah. well, I'm yeah, I'm I'm in some of those images. It's me and yeah, you. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like it's got confused. So it's given you... me your beard, yeah. my hair, <laughs> my waistline, and someone else's hands. So if we did get romantic on that canal boat, that is what would come going... out. <laughs> Jesus, I'm honestly concerned. <laughs> What's going on in your head? Another popular prompt within Mid Journey is to basically create yourself as a uh, as manga uh-huh. and this is slightly different I didn't actually use chat GPT for this instead I used an image prompt so I uploaded an image of you that was taken from the modern man website and I popped it up there and I, I said recreate this image as manga and this is what it came up with Ooh, not me now you say that I think you're wrong. I think that... Not me, but a stunning image. Like, I mean, that really looks like a very talented artist has drawn that. It looks like like a young actor has been cast as me in a biopic of my life. And at first, uh, people, bloggers would be like, oh, he's bad casting. But then when you watch the film, you're like, okay, I'm going to accept that's Ollie Man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think think that's fair. I, I just... I was genuinely stunned by it. And I think... This is the thing that people are mostly talking about when we're, when we're speaking about all of this kind of stuff. The concerns around it, I suppose. Will graphic designers and sub-editors lose their jobs forever? Graphic designers, lawyers, doctors, writers, all of these people. Where are their jobs going to go? And, and yeah. I, I wanted to press Alok on this because he's a journalist, you know. And he's like, no, if you're worried about this or scared about it, you shouldn't be. Instead, you should be really excited about it. Think of it more as a tool. Something that can take away the benign dull shit that we have to do day in, day out. Like, for example, I use ChatGPT and it will do this to generate a spreadsheet for me because I couldn't be bothered to organise it myself. And you can literally copy and paste that into Excel. You can ask it to write code for you for a really simplistic website. You can even ask it to check code for you in a complicated website. So if you're not competent in that stuff, it will do it for you. And if you just want to kind of just throw some ideas around, it will just be a starting point for you. It's like having somebody to brainstorm with. Yeah, but what about all the concerns that we've raised about all the other tech innovations we've ever covered on this show, i.e. your data, right? So you're giving this information now to Microsoft about what you're searching for and what you're asking it to do. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's going to end up the essential tool for everyone's jobs in real time and secondly the environmental concerns surely there's computers crunching away to create this information which is harmful whereas our brains aren't yeah i mean but this this is the same with any search i mean that you know it's widely known how much energy google uses per search it's like the equivalent of boiling a kettle and that kind of thing chat gpt costs on average around a hundred thousand dollars a day to run because of the number of gpus it uses to to you know, run this algorithm, that's only become bigger and bigger and bigger. But arguably, if you've got a system that can eventually, and and again, this is this alloc took took me sort of five, six years in the future. What we're talking about is is, you know, virtual assistants that can pretty much do anything in in a really human way. So you could ultimately turn around to it and say, look, can you just book me a holiday to Tenerife between these dates? And it'll do it, <laughs> right? It won't. Yeah. It's not like at the moment where, like, the way that we search things, we have to go, okay, right, flights to Tenerife. Yeah, okay, got that. Hotels in Tenerife. Yeah, got that. Instead, you can go, look, you know me. You know what I like. You know what I don't like. Do you mind just yeah. booking it, sorting it out? I'll include the family. Good kids club. Croissants yeah. at the buffet. 
So you yeah. get rid of all of the other, all of that stuff, all of that admin. Do my tax return. Can you do my tax return, please? Yes, I'll do your tax return. No problem. Okay, I'll okay, okay. That. But what you're describing to me is the future of AI. I wonder if you're describing the future of chat GPT as a product. Because I, what's what's difficult for me is because we have a huge long tail on this show, right? We're a monthly show. I know people are going to be downloading this episode in four years' time, and they will now be laughing listening to this for one of two reasons. Either we sound incredibly naive about what AI has gone on to become and we've got the world's first AI global president, or this was just a trend. Like, it really was just a, a meme. This was It was a big one, but it was, I don't know, it was Pokemon Go. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was a thing everyone did and then they forgot about Think of it as 1993. We've had the first web browser, all very exciting. Ooh, but we can't really see how that's going to transpire in the future. Look at us now. We were kind of, you know, we've got smartphones with apps and we, you know, we, we, we communicate with the internet on a daily basis. We use it for pretty much everything. We're kind of at that point now. We're at that early point. Can't fully see how it's going to change things, but it will be transformative. Would you like to know what your challenge is for next month, Holly? Yes! It's from George in Aberdeen who says... Mm. I read okay. that the new sport at the Olympics next year... Oh, I see the Olympics next year already. Oh, my God. Uh, ...is breakdancing. Oh. I'd like Holly to give it a go. <laughs> Presumably not at an Olympic level. But to investigate where the breakdancing, I suppose, uh, has earned its place in the Olympic roster. Have you ever done breakdancing before? I seem to remember in middle school, like, there was one kid that could do this thing with his legs. So he'd put his leg out yeah. and then, like, spin round and then it would go under his other leg. And then we'd all kind of try that in the playground. That's about as far as I got with breakdancing. I mean, I might have tried to do the worm at a wedding and popped a rib, but no. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of questions. You know, is there, like, an age at which it's inappropriate to still be breakdancing? Because I feel like it's not like swing dancing, is it? Like, I feel like, you know, there's an age at which probably you shouldn't be breakdancing anymore. Is it culturally appropriating? Is it a microaggression to be a white man with a ginger beard breakdancing? I don't know. I'd be interested to find out. Okay. <laughs> These are the answers you want, not just, can you breakdance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I look forward to uh, hearing all about your journey, your breakdancing journey, Ollie. Thanks. If you have a challenge you would like to set to Ollie to investigate on a future edition of the Zeitgeist, head to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and fill out the feedback form. Coming up next, you're going to meet our interviewee for this month, Ian. Uh, but first, it's time for our record of the month. It's this by Billy Martin. It's called This Is How We Move, and it's out now. I watch the light on the moon To keep my baby soft And he said, you keep the garden This is how we move This is how we move I wasn't well before him Now, as we've been hearing, perhaps in the future when it came to choosing your clothes, AI could be doing that for you, your size, your style, your fit, and have them posted out to your home. But in the meantime, how about using an actual human being, a stylist who knows what they're doing and what you like? 
That is what you get when you freshen up your wardrobe with our sponsors this month, Stitch Fix. Head on over to stitchfix.co.uk slash man to set up your profile and a style expert will select a few items in your taste, in your size and in your preferred price range. And if I'm sounding smug about this, that's because right now I am wearing some Jake Slim jeans from Marvy and a Fairlane and Sons cotton cashmere crew neck jumper it's pink. I would never have chosen pink, but it works. And a Breakburn Gingham shirt, all sent to me from Stitch Fix, and I didn't need to leave the house to look like this. <laughs> and here's the best part. Usually you pay a styling fee of a tenner each time you order, but our friends at Stitch Fix have a special offer for you man fans. Right now, the styling charge for your first order will be waived, which gives you the opportunity to try their service completely free of charge, no subscription required. You keep what you want. Delivery and returns are easy and free. So get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash M-A-N-N, remember the double N, uh, and you'll receive your first fix styled and delivered to you absolutely free and... To sweeten the deal, you'll get an additional 20% off when you keep all five items in your fix. Again, that's stitchfix.co.uk slash M-A-N-N. You've got nothing to lose. Uh, right, time for our middle feature now. Um, and do remember, by the way, if you would like to share your story on a future edition of the show, you can just fill in the feedback form on our website. Today, we're talking about Ukraine. Sort of. It's been a year since Vladimir Putin sent 200,000 soldiers there, and in the fighting that's followed, hundreds of thousands of people have died, and at least 12 million have fled their homes. And whilst it's true that the war has hardly left the headlines, here in Britain at least, the charitable efforts of 12 months ago, fundraisers, social media campaigns, pledge drives to raise money for Ukrainians, have rather inevitably slowed down. But there are people, have-a-go heroes perhaps, who've never stopped helping out since the war began. And this month I went to meet one of them. Ian Mudge from Gloucestershire in some ways fits the bill of your typical do-gooder. He's an ex-head teacher, he delivers aid to a Polish church, but in other ways, he's got a surprising background for someone so dedicated to helping people out. So I started by asking Ian, if we were to have met him when he was a kid, who would we find ourselves faced with? I think a fairly typical kid growing up, suburb of Bristol, pretty rough school I went to in fact it was an awful school and we just went into school to terrorize the teachers really there was no education there um, like what like what chasing each other around the school knocking on the staff in doors swearing at the teachers and it was a time of football hooligans as well some of the kids would get in a van at lunchtime tooled up and go to a rival school go to the chip shop and and beat the kids up and then they might come up the following week in a, in a van, jump out of the chip shop. It was it was urban warfare. Bloody hell. Three schools. What yeah. did the teachers think of you then? I think it was just trying to do control. I can remember one teacher, a science teacher, a young teacher, writing on the board and an egg exploded. And the kid sat next to me had thrown an egg at her and she just crumpled. And we ran out of the classroom and we actually walked over her as, as, as we went out of the classroom. She was on the floor and we stamped on her as we went out of the room. Wow just yeah but that was a victory then for you guys it wasn't a victory it getting a teacher a to crumple was, on the floor though that's just a laugh a laugh yeah it was just a laugh and that's all we did what did you think you were going to be ah uh, what happened is i broke my leg at 15 i bought a moped um took it home drilled the exhaust out 
took it over a field, found a door, built a ramp, and spent six months in hospital with a really badly broken leg. Um, I wasn't really at school for the last year of the school year. Of course, no no O-levels at that time because the results went out the window. So I did an apprenticeship, so it changed my life. <laughs> totally changed my life. So actually, you know, going on in your career was benefited more by skipping school for a year than it would have been by attending. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah, it took me down a completely different route. I did a four-year craft apprentice. But again, I did the apprenticeship I did. allowed me to leave Bristol because they took all the apprentices down to Devon. Mm-hmm. You can imagine 60, 16-year-olds with money in digs. And and the stuff we did was just horrendous, running around, running riot. But we were being paid. It was just a fantastic time. Uh, <laughs> like what? I lived in a tiny little village called Instow. And at the time, there was a, a railway line that ran through the village. So we walked up the railway line with some cheap wire, wrapped it around the rail, railway tracks, triggered the, the level crossing. The barriers came down. But of course, it, normally it would be a train that triggers it. And then when it goes through the other side, the gates come back up. But because we only did one side, the barriers stayed down. And we just left it like it. Yeah, it was that sort of, you'd, be, you'd be jailed for some of it, what we were doing. Jumping in manholes where you had the telecommunications people working, chopping the wires off flush with the side of the trench, so they then had to dig the road up to pull the cables through. Just nutty stuff. So, like again, that stuff that affects other people as well, like stuff that you thought was fun but was obviously ruining someone else's day, some adult's day. Yeah, totally. But we didn't. It was just fun, and I remember going into Cardiff on my 18th birthday, and we threw all the seats out out the train out the window. How do you even do that? We just take. You lift them off and throw them out. And you can't lift time. a train seat out of a train. <laughs> you can. I guess a load of you, craft apprentices can. Yeah. And another time, where were we going? We were going to Southampton. And we we put on our white overalls, because we all worked in the nuclear industry. We put our white overs on with respirators and walked through the train saying, do not be alarmed. <laughs> and just, yeah, we just, just had fun. Would you describe yourself as a punk then? Yeah, probably I was at that time, but not in... Uh, did I have a Mohican? Yeah, probably I think I may have had a Mohican at that point and stuff, yeah. I think I was the only punk in the in the group of, uh, you know, 60-odd apprentices. I was the only one that wore those clothes, had that head. I mean, I used, I used to work at a power station in Bristol, Albury Power Station. It was two mess rooms. The fitters and the electricians had one and the operators had another one. I remember we barricaded the outside of the operator's mess room with huge boxes, 10 foot deep eight foot high then drove a fire engine round to the other side opened the windows and put a four inch fire hose through the window and as the guys go to open the door there's just a there's a barrier they can't get out just just flooded them yeah i'd gone to glastonbury in 81 and 82 and in 82 i walked out because i'd driven the van down with about 16 of us in there one of the kids was a heroin addict Asked if he had smack on him. He said no. Went through the police checkpoints. Got through okay. The moment we were inside, he jacked up. And and it would have cost me my job. And and left the tent, left the sleeping bag, left the van and walked out. And I I had nothing more to do with those guys. Hmm. Uh, Just decided that lifestyle was not not for me. I mean, it was heroin was quite big then. And it wasn't part of my life.
So how did education then, professionally, become part of the picture? I think I left school not having fulfilled my potential and wanting to, to show what I was capable of doing. And, and that's always fueled me. So showing that you are capable. Um, and then, so it just, yeah, I went to night school, not with any particular ambition, um, just, yeah, I didn't have a, a foresight for it. And then it became apparent pretty quick that I was good with the kids. And, and, but again, I was teaching at quite a high profile secondary school in, in Cheltenham, very high achieving school, but I was getting amazing results. I was getting some of the best results in the school. Teaching and, what? Design and technology, mm -hmm. DT. So it's the old fashioned woodwork. What was your favorite kind of child to teach? Uh, challenging ones. So 13 and 14 year old group of kids is the most challenging bunch of kids to teach. They, it's particularly, they're coming to the end, they've done option choices. So some of them won't have chosen DT. So they know at, at sort of Easter time, they're never going to do that subject again. There's no interest in it. There's no, there's no investment in there. So try and these kids, they can walk into a classroom and if a kid on one side does or says something, the others know where it's going because they've been together for three years and they're quite hard work. How do you keep your composure when they're slightly turning the mood in the room? Humour works. Humour can be really great. I mean, I have, I did, I was teaching at a school in Swindon for a short time and I completely and utterly lost it. It was a GCSE group. They were fucking around and I turned around and, and I lost it completely. And I just said, you're a bunch of cunts. <laughs> and, and I'm not fucking teaching you anymore. And I'll come and sit with you. And I went and sat with them. And they said, well, what are you doing? And I said, you fuck off. I'm not teaching you anymore. I said, I get paid whether you get results or not. <laughs> so you don't want to learn. I don't want to teach you. I'll sit here. No, I'm laughing now. Did they think that was hilarious or were they quite scared about it? No, they that? were really yeah. shocked. Yeah. And I it's said, a bit you, intimidating, isn't it? Yeah. And they said, I said, you've got a choice. You can vote. And I'll come back to the front of the classroom and I'll teach you or you can vote and I'll sit with you and we'll just play cards for the rest of the year. I really don't give a shit which one you choose because I'm going to get paid. And they voted to have me at the front and I never had a problem. I mean, that's a great gamble, but that is, I mean, you're uh, pressing been, the nuclear uh, button there, aren't you? I mean, that could have uh, gone the other way. Could have gone the other way. It could have been sacked. <laughs> <laughs> if they had ever found out, it would have been sacked. But the thing is, the kids see you as someone human. I didn't crumble. Mm. I just called their bluff. Yeah. And did it help that you'd been a child like that? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't going to intimidate me, but I wasn't going to waste my time on you. And Ian wasn't fired. In fact, he made it all the way to head teacher at a PRU in Cheltenham, the pupil referral unit. If a child's not in mainstream education, they are entitled to a place in education. And it's the local authority's legal responsibility to find that place and so what local authorities do is set up a pupil referral unit so if a kid's excluded they've got somewhere to pace that kid and hopefully return them to a mainstream school environment so and mostly excluded for behavior vast majority yeah yeah which is what i mean is it truancy is it no you can't be excluded for truancy it's you can't you cannot be punished for being absent from school is that right it's yeah 100 percent. the schools will they'll find a reason mm. but you can't you cannot be excluded for being absent so then it's aggressiveness, inappropriate language, bullying. Yeah, threatening, intimidation, fights, drugs. A lot of mental health, actually. But we, I mean, again, this is going back 20 years when mental health wasn't, uh, wasn't on the radar. It didn't exist. Mm. It's a quite cheesy kind of upmarket area, Cheltenham, isn't it? 
So to uh, be running the PRU there must be quite a specific uh, contrast. Yeah, because your your perception of Cheltenham is totally and utterly flawed. If I told you that Cheltenham had some of the highest deprivation factors in the UK that exceed Glasgow, Newcastle, London. I taught Britain's youngest mother in the Forest of Dean. She was 10. She was raped by a stepdad when she was 10. We're not talking Glasgow or London. Mm. We're talking the Forest of Dean. What kind of staff work best in that environment? Teachers who are like very prepared to abandon the structure when you have to, no? Yeah, um, I used to get it in the neck sometimes because you could see stuff going wrong. Sometimes I'd grab a group of kids, bung them in a minibus and drive them to a local five-side park and just let them boot a ball around. And then they come back and the teachers say, we've just undermined us. Yeah, I probably have, but this was going nowhere. And with hindsight, probably not the best thing always to do because it did undermine people sometimes, undermine their own authority. So did you have children for whom the system really did actually work? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the kids we got back into mainstream school. There was one kid whose father had been at a special school in 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 Gloucestershire and had been sexually abused by a teacher there. And he'd gone right off the rails, uh, active criminal, been in prison. And during this time, the teacher was also found out and in prison. And strangely, met this guy in prison. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you can imagine it was pretty horrific uh, what happened to the teacher. But this guy, quite deservedly so, had complete and utter contempt for the educational system. And his lab was excluded. And I I had him in the, the lad in the school. And the lad basically just had a very angry father who hated authority. We got the lad into another school, but then the, the school rang me up and said, Ian, the, yeah, the dad's in threatening us. So I used to go to this, I used to go to this lad's house on a Friday night. I used to sit in my car, take my tie off, take my watch off, uh, empty my pockets, and I'd go into the house and I'd have a cup of tea with the dad, not knowing whether I was going to have a fight or not, have a cup of tea with him and reassure him that everything was all right. And I did that for about six weeks. And then his dad accepted that his kid was going to be all right and relaxed. Yeah, and he, he I know that lad went on, finished school, and has got an apprenticeship, and he's working. So the system worked. And what from your kind of countercultural childhood, you know, your interest in punk, what did you put from that experience into your job? I used to say to the kids sometimes, yeah, imagine you walk into a room and you've got three doors, A, B, and C. I said, the travesty is if you never open those doors and look to see what's on the other side. You don't have to go through it, but the travesty is not having the, the bravery to open the door and just take a look. No one's forcing you through it, but take take a look because you could go through one of those doors and it'd change your life. And it was that just being brave enough to look over the parapet. A lot of these kids didn't have the support, the backgrounds that would enable them even to turn the doorknob and, and open the door. They weren't going to risk failure. These kids have been, I think if you look at... Um, there's studies. So if you look at a kid from a disadvantaged background to a kid from an affluent background, that disadvantaged kid has heard something like 20 times more negative words a day than the kid from the positive background. So they are fueled by negativity. So they will never, ever risk because their whole life is a negative experience. So they're not prepared to risk more negativity. Was it frustrating to know that there were some things you could never do because of the kind of prognosis that you had with the kids. No, there. you don't. You don't. You don't. You don't say never. 
you keep going. You just keep going. However difficult, however bad it is. Because nobody else will do it. I can remember I can remember fitting a gas cooker in one, one family's home two days before Christmas. Managed to do a fudge with some funding. So I was able to justify buying a gas cooker for them. Um, so they could cook a Christmas dinner. What did it do to you, that job? It burnt me out. I had to stop. In fact, I was told to stop. What was that moment? To keep on top of it, I was cycling 200 miles a week, 30-mile round trip. I was doing that three or four days a week. and then but To bank- keep on top of what? Stress. I knew I was stressed out of my tree. Uh, and what had happened is I'd started to set... I don't know if you've ever been stressed. So little things. So I'd go to school and think, right, if I can get to the end of this week, I'll be all right for next week. Then it became, if I can get to the end of the day... Then it became, if I can get to lunchtime, then it became, if I can get to the end of this meeting. So the, the, the little targets became smaller and smaller and smaller. What uh, were you lying in bed thinking about at night? I was just dread. Just dreading it. Because, and it wasn't, it wasn't the kids, it wasn't the staff. The, the, whole, the whole system was dysfunctional. We were funded for 54 kids. I had 108. So you can't have a controlled environment with new No school could have... 10% of its cohort turning up on a weekly, but new new cohort on a weekly basis. And expect your structures and, and routines to exist. It's mm. impossible. I'd gone to the to the doctor, described all the symptoms. So I was numb. I was numb from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Uh, left, left-hand side of my body uh, was completely numb. Pins and needles, chest pains. And this has been going on for a while. He said, Ian, you've gone beyond exhausted. You've gone beyond burnt out. He said, there's a Japanese word for it, and I can't remember the word. He said, well, you are literally working yourself to death. He said, you have to stop. I said, I can't. I'm a, I'm a hamster on a hamster wheel, and it's just spinning faster. And he said, no, you, you, you have to stop. You can have a heart attack or a stroke. And I said, well, you tell me to stop, and I'll stop. And he said, because I need permission to stop. And he said, you stop. And so I never went back. I walked out of his office, and I never, I went back to the school, cleared my desk, and I never went back. Do you remember where you were when you heard that Russia had invaded Ukraine? I must have been doing because it would be about this time last year, almost, almost to the week, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. So, just remember becoming vaguely aware that something wasn't right. Just seeing it flash up on the news, and you, it just grown into a bigger, a bigger thing, really. The Russian president says a military operation is now underway in eastern Ukraine. But what you can see in these pictures, a road near the border with Belarus. And you can see what Ukrainian officials say is a column of Russian armor crossing into Ukrainian territory from the north. It was probably the refugee. When you start to see the people pouring out, I think that was the, I think we'd watched the news. and uh, You and your wife? Yeah, and we'd gone to bed. And they were talking about the refugee. And my wife said to me, you could do something to help. And it, and I'm just at that point, because I'm, well, I'm 58. I'm at that point in life where I had time. So as a teacher, I never, ever, I couldn't have considered even having a half hour away from the school. That can't happen. Mm. But now I had the time. Kids have grown up. They're not at home. And so I got the time. I got the resources. And I thought, actually, yes, she's probably right. But what did she mean? What did she mean? You could, could talk- do something. We, we, I think we'd seen somebody collecting aid for refugees, and she said you could do that. So, so she meant locally, you could set up an initiative to get some what clothes, toys, that to, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and no more than that, really. Maybe give it to a charity. 
yeah, hadn't really talked about it. So it was just like, yeah, you could do, you got, you could, you could help out somehow, Ian. Yeah, you got the time. That's, I mean, suggestive of a very small commitment. But, uh, totally, totally. But that's, that's not what happened. Is it? <laughs> it never is, though. Everything I do goes to another level. So what happened? So what happened is we identified a charity in Poland. I wrote to the three heads of the three biggest schools in Stroud, and they came straight back within an hour. Yeah, Ian, no problem. We're on board. And the next day, there's over two, 3,000 emails go out. Yeah, you know, target audience is hit so easily. It's unbelievable. Asking what? I contacted the charity what what do you want and so it was baby items uh sanitary for the for the mothers and medical items so they'd wanted baby stuff because obviously everything's in short supply uh and the sanitary they just needed tampaxes and and, and sanitary towels and you know soap really basic stuff because they had nothing that was the bottom line so I, wrote, I did a list wrote to the schools and said right we want baby sanitary and medical the only condition is it has to be new. I wasn't prepared to take someone else's secondhand crap. You know, the, these are refugees. They deserve humility and, and, and respect. We're not taking our, our casts off and pre-used stuff. Uh, schools sent it all out and then we were just inundated. It, it sort of it started to sort of snowball. And at this point, you've got no idea what 100 boxes of Tampax, so what, what does that look like yeah. physically? And then the school started ringing me up, Ian, you need, can you come in, please? Our reception area is full and we can't operate as a school. So I then have to start to drive to the schools. And I think, oh, golly, there's, there's a lot of stuff here. Where am I going to store all this? Um, and then I thought, right, I've got to get a van. Christ, this is all escalating out a bit. Worked out routes. Uh, Hold on. Some people listening to this will be thinking, well, the motive sounds brilliant and the passion is great and the fact that you've managed to unlock charitable giving in local people, good. But the practical side of it, you know, is it better to collect a whole load of Tampax in Stroud and then drive them halfway across Europe or is it better to raise money and give it just to the charity in Poland so they can go to the supermarket and buy it? What's the reality there? Right, so the, the honest answer is it would be far, far easier to collect the money and post it out to Poland and cut out the middleman. But the reality is, is people, some people won't give to charity because we all see the corruption. Um, and they, But they, because of my reputation, I said what I would do is personally deliver it to mm. a charity working directly with the refugees. What I wasn't prepared to do was collect aid and then just sort of drive randomly around Europe dropping it off where I saw some refugees. And so people were prepared to give. The schools would buy into it because they, the heads at the schools know me and they know if I say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. They're not going to outsource it. So the schools knew that they could collect this stuff and it would be delivered to where it was said. The other bit that we hadn't factored in was that the kids watching the news felt really helpless. They couldn't do anything to help. And I had an awful lot of feedback saying, from parents and school saying the kids are really grateful that they can actually put something together that they know is going to help another child and it really helped the kids relate to the news and and feel less anxious about it because they felt they could make a difference at the same time i did do a crowdfunder and of course that that first one the the, you know it's it's ukraine refugees was top of the the news it was over everything so there's a lot of publicity had a couple of big uh, private donations where they didn't want any uh, publicity for it. 
one person gave me two thousand pounds, and I and I negotiated trade discount with a local camping shop, and I spent two thousand pounds on sleeping bags because one of the things the charity had asked for was bedding. What was the rest of the crowdfunder for then? Uh, so it's three uh, three things: fuel, ferry crossing, and van. And it's about eleven hundred quid to do a round trip. And that's driving all the way to Poland yourself. So basically, I go from straight up to Harwich, uh, which is about four or five hours. Jump on a ferry, and I still haven't worked out which is best, whether to get the night ferry and and then drive through the Netherlands, uh, Germany and Poland in the day, or get the day ferry, drive to Germany, Kip, and then arrive in Poland in the morning. And it's just a hard drive. You do a long, hard drive. I think it takes getting off the ferry to Poland. It's about 12, 13 hours if I stop for 15 minutes for fuel and a pee. And I can just go straight through. As can long. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done it a few times. Wow. And the, the first I need trip... to stop twice in a three-hour journey. <laughs> so I loaded the fans up and I arrive at this warehouse. In, in It's a big town in, in Poland. And this guy comes out, a guy called Radoslav, who speaks no English. So we've got the, got the phones out, we've got Google Translate. He shows me his ID, so he's definitely the right guy that, that uh, my contacts have named. He's got a little sheet that he signs for me. They slide open these big metal doors, and all these guys walked out, really skinny, drug addict type guys with teardrop tattoos, uh, the, the Russian onion sort of mosque uh, prison tattoos. I think these guys are criminals. Nobody speaks any English. The warehouse is full of aid. You're thinking, well, am I being scammed here? I'm really not sure. So we hand all all this stuff over and uh, say thank you very much. It's all quite pragmatic. And I drove home. After your big sort of dopamine hit of do-gooding, you're actually just left with the feeling that you may have just transferred a whole load of charitable goods to a bunch of criminals. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the feeling that you thought you might get, I No, no. And I didn't see a single refugee. So you think... And then uh, a week later, they sent three photos of it all being distributed um, out in the countryside, kids getting stuff. So you could see it was all legit. Mm. No, definitely no question about it. Later on, I met a woman, late 30s, early 40s, Ukrainian woman. She was a businesswoman. Uh, she had her own flat in Kiev. Uh, she had a Mercedes soft top coupe sports car, high profile job, but she'd been forced to leave her life. So she'd driven out in a Mercedes that she then had to abandon on the side of the road because she'd run out of fuel. She could only carry a carrier bag with a change of clothing and some sanitary towels. She'd lost a flat, she lost a car, she lost a job. That's what's happened to her. And she turns up at the Polish border with nothing. And then I think the second trip, they asked me for shoes, women's shoes, because they said the women have walked out and physically worn their shoes out. So I then went to the girls' high school, because I thought, ah, girls' high school, Chatham Ladies College, which is right at the other end of the spectrum. So I then... I indulged my fetish for women's shoes and, and filled up a van. Same so, thing, second time round? Uh, so the second time round, I meet Dominic, who's the pastor from the church, who speaks English with an Irish accent because he did his theology degree in Dublin, I think. And he says, ah, oh, Ian, really appreciate what you're doing. He said, did you meet Radoslav? And I said, yeah, of course I did. He said, did you work out what he does? I said, well, no. I said, he took the, took the aid and stuff. I said, was it all? He said, yeah, he's a prison chaplain. And what he does is he homes, he's got three safe houses in the town. And these are all convicts, ex-convicts that 
that if they come to our church, we will provide them with a house, bed and board. And in return, they got work for us. So, yeah, they were all criminals, quite serious criminal. I saw a tattoo of one guy, a, a photo of one guy, a middle-aged guy, could have been your granddad. And it showed a picture of him in prison with his shirt off. He's covered in swastikas and right-wing insignia. It's just bonkers. But with but the shirt on, he looked like Father Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just bonkers so the first time I went the church is working with 250 families that's in February by the time I get to September they're working with 5,000 families wow mothers and children and there's 20,000 refugees in the town so they're working with quite a significant that's just one town in Poland yeah yeah that's one town and it's and and by September the Dominic said Ian you, you Although you're a one-man band, you're one of the few charities still going. Everyone else is sort of clap. You know, everyone gets on the bandwagon to start with, but actually sustaining it over a period of time. People, oh, I've done my good deed. I hang my hat up, or they've run out of money. The first time I went, there were soup kitchens behind the church from another charity. I think it was an American school, and they there were there were like eight enterprise rental vans there. That's all. That all never saw it again after the first trip. So. Because yeah. we are now at the first anniversary of the yeah. war breaking out. I mean, obviously, depending on whether you date it on when Putin invaded Crimea or whether you date it on, on 2022. But in any case, it's been a year since this has been in most people's minds. And the narrative that we're kind of being told by politicians is Russia, Putin thought we would forget Ukraine, but we haven't. Yeah. Look, we're ordering all these tanks to go over there. But from a charity point of view, it kind of does feel a bit like people have forgotten about it. So it's, it, they have totally forgotten. So, and it's simple stuff. Like, so the, my fourth trip was uh, school supplies. They wanted because the kid, all the all the kids, a bit like in England, where I said with the you know kids entitled to an education, it's the same in Poland. So they've they've got all these Ukrainian kids that need to go to school, but they had no school supplies, no bags, no pens, no pencils. But it was on the fourth trip that you saw the scale of the problem. And I and I was and I'd actually spent some extra time in Poland because I wanted to meet the refugees to see what the impact of what we were doing. And actually, it was too emotionally. You, you, the, I watched people coming in getting a bag of food, and you just saw how grateful they were. And it would have been wrong to intrude on on them. So I just watched. I didn't I didn't speak to them because it wasn't appropriate. And then I drive him back to to England. I think on that trip I was on my own. Actually, I did it all on my Todd. And uh, I'm driving back, and I think, yeah, maybe I could do it's Christmas this a few months later. I'll do shoeboxes. So I did. The, do you remember the uh, Romanian orphanage, mm. orphans and stuff? I think people started to do it there, where you saw kids that had they had nothing. So you, the, the idea is, is you get a, a, a shoebox size box. It doesn't have to be a shoebox, and then you put in maybe a toothbrush, some soap, maybe a little pack of cards, a flannel, some chocolate, and you basically fill the box up with goodies. Um, and I hadn't told my wife I was going to do a fifth trip. And then she got wind that I'd approached the schools. And she said, are you going again? It's like, yes, I think I am. And uh, so we, I did the shoebox appeal. And, and so I took out Christmas presents for the kids. Do you, do you think in an ideal world, I mean, obviously in an ideal world, there wouldn't be a war in Europe, obviously. 
But in an ideal world, do you think bigger charities or the government or the governments of Europe would be doing what you're doing rather than you doing it? Or do you think there'd always be space for individuals to do uh, this kind of thing? It's interesting because I, I did say to Dominic, you know, because sometimes if you work out the practicalities, it's not worth me taking. I mean, when I take five days out, I, I lose a week's wages. Um, I don't get paid for it. I don't take any money out of the, the GoFundMe for, for my time. It's cost 1100 quid to rent a van and the ferry tickets and so forth and the fuel. But on the other hand, it's really important, I think, for some of the people that gave, that they, they feel that they can contribute and don't feel helpless. It's like Dominic said, you know, most of the charity stuff, Ian, is dried up. It's gone. And I said to him, it's a needle in a haystack. I'm bringing a van out and it's nothing compared to the scale of the problem. He said, it may be nothing but it's everything to these people. So yeah, it is worth it. I I had about seven or 800 shoe boxes all wrapped with Christmas wrapping paper. Those kids aren't getting anything for Christmas. They're getting nothing. And it was really, really important that they got something. It was really important to me that they got something for Christmas and they weren't forgotten. A lot of people listening to this will say, oh, how inspiring. I could do that too. I'll go and do it. I'll go and fill a van full of stuff and drive it to Poland. Would you recommend that that is a good idea to do? 100%. But the only provision is make sure you've got an identified contact to take it to. So you know what you know where it's going and it's legit. If you want to use my contacts, you're more than welcome. I mean, I've, I met somebody, who, they, they emailed me and said, Ian, we've, got a, we've raised money, we've, we've got a, ge- a generator. Yeah, and... They've got a generator, but they've gone out. They didn't know where what to do with it. Mm. It's just like, well, that's really random and a, and a, it's well intentioned, but you haven't thought that one through. Yeah, I think if as long as you've got an outlet and you think, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, you might work for a company that that can put a pallet of of, of stuff together. Great, I'll give you an outlet for it. But and or take the step yourself. It's not difficult. I mean, in general, do you think the world needs more people taking their own initiative? No, I think I think there's two layers to the world. I, and uh, I mean, I'm not a socialist, but I think the top layer of society now is rotten to the core. It's just narcissistic, self-fulfilling. You look what's going on in politics and stuff. The world is not a pleasant place when you look at it like that. That top layer, they're just in it for themselves. But underneath it, there is a layer of people, like-minded people like myself, that help what's the word altruistic where you you do good things for other people and and the it might be the lollipop lady on the corner there it might be somebody working in a charity shop there is a massive mass they would never be recognized you know i'll never be recognized or rewarded and i don't want it that's not what i did it for yeah but there is a huge layer there that does all this good stuff these people we exist and we do make the world a decent place Definitely. Ian Mudge. You can find out more about his fundraising at stroudukrainesupport.com. I'll put a link to that on our website too. Coming up next, what's the ethical way to watch porn? Alex Fox answers your sex questions after this. (laughs) 
Time for your questions of sex. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hi, Ollie. I'm feeling finer and more golden than one of Rapunzel's pubes. Busy month for you, isn't it? February always, Valentine's. Lots of things to write, etc. What's the big news uh, in sex world? I'm very grateful for the work, but I must admit it's not really an inherently romantic time for me personally. Well, it's suddenly the time that everyone who doesn't normally cover sex wants to cover sex, isn't Oh, it? yeah, even Marks and Spencers are suddenly yeah. making <laughs> heart-shaped sausages and stuff like that. Um, but I do have have some optimistic uplifting news. Mm -hmm. The clitoris, our itty bitty clitty, Mm -hmm. has been discovered to be even less small than we thought of previously and even more powerful. Um, Now for years there's been this um, statistic bandied around on the internet. I have quoted it myself in my more naive youth with all good intention that the clitoris has around 8,000 nerve endings. Mm -hmm. Um, When I dug deeper I discovered that that piece of information actually came from 1976, a book called The Clitoris by Thomas and Thea Lowry. Um, and it actually cites a study on cows. So it's not <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, we now have much more up-to-date information. Uh, there's been a new study led by the Oregon Health and Science University uh, who've discovered in their research that there's an average 10,281 nerve endings. Okay. Now, to, so it's significantly more yes. yeah and to give you a comparison the palm of your hand has about 17,000 nerve endings in it i found this out by the way by slicing up samples of uh, clitoral nerves with a device called an ultra microtome into tiny minuscule sections but presumably it wasn't attached to people at the time no no <laughs> thank god no no um time for your question of sex it comes this month from manfan dolores who says, Alex, my partner and I, long-time listeners to the show, would like to watch some girl-girl porn together. But how do I ensure that the platform or video is one where the actors slash workers are paid and of age and doing it with consent, please? There is so much porn out there, but I'd rather buy some knowing the participants get a share of the profits. Okay, so I think we're all up to speed when it comes to non-consensual, like someone leaking someone's video or whatever. I think we all know not to be looking at that, right? Yeah, a lot of people call leaked videos like that revenge porn. Mm. Um, That's that's a common term for it. But actually a more accurate term and one that activists are trying to get more people to to use is image-based sexual abuse. Mm. Um, The term revenge porn comes from the idea that images that were maybe made consensually in a private relationship that were never supposed to be seen publicly or by anyone else might be released by a spurned aggravated Mm. lover to get somebody back for dumping them that is terrible on its own but image-based sexual abuse can include a much broader range of of problematic content Um, sometimes for example it may be released with the idea that the person sharing it gains some kind of social status or Mm. gets a buzz from sharing something that they knew that someone never wanted to see but i think i'm speaking here for probably the majority of people listening to this who look at pornography on the internet you know there's one stop and it's Pornhub and if you're looking at professional porn on Pornhub is that unethical? 
Well, one of the multitude of criticisms has been levelled at Pornhub specifically, although this applies to a lot of the free tube sites, is that what you are watching is not guaranteed not to be image-based sexual abuse. There was a huge New York Times expose that showed that images of underage children uh, of coerced and abused people had been put on Pornhub and Pornhub took a really long time to take them down even when ordered to do so. Sometimes they were re-uploaded. There are people whose traumatic images of terrible, awful things in their lives are still floating around the internet on supposedly mainstream porn sites. Okay, so that's bad. But to return to my question, if you can see it's professional, just on that basis, if it's a professional porn studio that's uploaded it, it's on their channel. They're presumably monetizing it by persuading you to sign up to their website. The people performing have got contracts and consented. Is that unethical? Still not necessarily ethical. For a start, the people in those porn films may not be being treated very well on set. They might not be provided with the ability to say that they want something to stop if things aren't going well. They might have been given very basic information about what sex acts they were expected to perform, but not given any information about the storyline. They may not be paid well. Um, A little while ago, one of the most popular mainstream porn performers in the industry, Mia Khalifa, revealed that she reckoned that she'd only made £9,500 over the course of her entire career. That was her take home. Um, because so many professionally shot videos are being copied and or pirated and then leaked to sites like Pornhub or Xhamster or other free tube sites, it's a lot harder then for those studios to make a profit. It is illegal for a material that someone doesn't own copyright to to be uploaded to those sites. The problem is it's really difficult to police. By the time these studios have petitioned to get it taken down, according to the law, it may have been re-uploaded by someone else. Okay, you've well delineated the issue then. Mainstream porn in the majority tends to be shot to please a um, a, a cis heterosexual male gaze. It doesn't tend to centre female pleasure or empowerment. It frequently features women being degraded or dehumanised in ways where that is consensual humiliation or degradation isn't an agreed part of the play or the deal. So... What do you do? So ethical porn, for a start, tends to cater more to a female gaze. A lot of it is made by women for women or for mixed audiences that include women or men who want to see women enjoying themselves more. And we know that women are watching porn. One piece of research uh, showed that more than a third of 18 to 35-year-old women said that they watched porn at least once a week. So the demand is there for material that shows women enjoying themselves and and being the centre of things. (laughs) That's not the only way to be ethical, but that is one particular uh, focus of a lot of ethical pornographic companies or or people who purport to be. Um, Another thing that we don't tend to see in mainstream material is diversity, real world bodies, real world world scenarios, mixtures of people. It tends to be more homogenized. I mean, when you think of mainstream porn, what type of body do you think of? Yeah, big boobs, big ass. Precisely. But But again, there's a market for that. It's not necessarily unethical 
to sell people big boobs and big dicks because that's what they're searching for. That is what they want. Absolutely not. What makes porn ethical or non-ethical is often a combination of factors. So there's a big emphasis on consent and communication. Uh, They want their performance to have genuine chemistry together rather than just being paired up with someone that they don't really know very well and whose company and, and touch they may not enjoy. They make sure their performers are comfortable. They give them enough breaks, pleasant working conditions, and they make sure that they are tested for STIs, tested for COVID, and most importantly, paid fairly and well. Just calling something ethical though, or someone calling themselves ethical does not make it so. a, a studio, for example, might be paying people well, but there might still be coercion on set. Mm. Uh, they might be showing diversity of bodies, but there still might be a problem with how those people are treated. Okay. And of course, there are some people who would argue porn can never be ethical because, according to your own belief system, it might be inherently yeah, patriarchal. They're like the and, vegans uh, of yeah. porn. I understand. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk to Dolores then and give her what she wants. Well, so, ethical girl-girl porn. If you are turned on by massive lists... <laughs> then I am about to make you wibble and dribble Big all list. of the best. Please. Um, well, there is a site called Crashpad. Um, this focuses on queer, non-binary and female-focused films. Um, I like it because it's got a lot of genuine laughter and silliness. It feels approachable and kind of warm and cuddly, mm-hmm. as well as fucking downright raunchy and filthy in all, in all of the best ways. Another to check out, royalfetishxxx.com. Now, this centres black love, passion and kink. Mm-hmm. It's run by a, a real-life couple who are polyamorous called Jet Setting Jasmine and King Noir, who also operate as kink performers and kink um, they run a lot of masterclasses they're they're mentors and teachers fetish trainers so a lot of their stuff as you would imagine is pretty hardcore Uh, then you've got Belessa I think I'm saying that right Belessa B-E-L-L-E-S-A this is all porn directed by women interestingly enough they've made the decision not to feature any incestuous play whatsoever so no twin sisters no stepbrothers Mm -hmm. no stepfathers Uh, other stuff you might want want to check out Erica Lust she is a Swedish icon within uh, the porn world um, who since way back like early noughties has been making porn that's focused on trying to change the way that the industry Mm. treats people and and the things that it depicts Um, there's one called Make Love Not Porn which is run by a brilliant woman who's become my friend Cindy Gallup check out her TED talk Um, she calls herself the Michael Bay of business because she loves blowing shit up and (laughs) and disrupting things Um, on her site couples willingly submit videos of themselves but it doesn't have to be in the format of a Michael Bay parody (laughs) no there don't have to be any explosions unless you wish there to be because bad boys i can imagine would work (laughs) pearl harbor would be tricky oh i don't know pearl necklace (laughs) it doesn't quite work does it um you can you get half the money to take home yourself from from that format if you decide that you want to remove that video at any time they will take it straight down Okay. There's a lot. I, mean, I can tell there is a lot. Now listen. I've got a huge no, 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 list here. I'll put it list. on our website. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I don't want to put it on our website. And the reason for that is it will show up as our podcast being an SFW. And I want oh. this advice to go around. What I'm going to suggest you do, if it's okay with you, mm-hmm. 
is either tweet it or put it on Instagram and I'll link that tweet to the show notes of this. I'll put it on Instagram, Ollie, because there is so much that I cannot fit it into, into one tweet. tweet. Fine. It would have to be a massive thread. Great. It would be longer than a one massive, of Rapunzel's pubes that Pending I your phone. <laughs> <laughs> so do that and I'll link to that Instagram post on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. One final question on this, which does occur to me and I'm sure will be occurring to people listening to this, is, okay, we've dealt with why not Pornhub, okay. Yeah. What about OnlyFans? Great question. Now, OnlyFans, I read a brilliant quote about about this recently that said that OnlyFans is the farm to table of X-rated content. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, and and there is, there's a lot of good things about paying performers directly. If you if there's someone you like, why not give them as much of your money up front mm. as possible? And, and you're Cut telling them the exactly man. what you yeah, want. Exactly. Yeah. OnlyFans take about 20% cut. 80% of, of the profits go direct to the performer. The performer gets to dictate exactly what they do, when they do it, and how much they charge for it, up to around 50 quid. So it does place, ostensibly, a lot of power into mm. individual creators' hands. The jury's kind of out on quite how ethical it is, and, and quite how much of a great deal it really is if you scratch the surface. For a start, OnlyFans can terminate in any account they want, for any reason they want, uh, with a 30-day notice. So they can pull the rug out, the pubic rug that's making you money, if they wish to. Um, OnlyFans also have always been very evasive and very um, reluctant to actually call themselves a porn mm, site. Mm. Um, they still call themselves a social platform for creators and fan connections. And in fact, a little while ago, they tried to ban all adult mm. content. There was a massive backlash. They did reinstate that. But I know a lot of the, the adult creators who used OnlyFans felt really offended that they had been bringing in massive amounts of capital to mm. this site, who then told them that actually they were a bit embarrassing and OnlyFans didn't want them there. The amount of power that OnlyFans has, they've, they've kind of largely cornered the market. Mm. There are some indie sites who, who operate in a similar way starting to pop up now who say that they are unafraid of being unapologetically pornographic and, and for adult content and that they will protect the, the sex workers and the content creators who use them because OnlyFans, by distancing themselves and saying we're not specifically designed for sex work mean that they distance themselves from having to protect those people they're mm. not designed specifically for sex work so they're not designed specifically to protect sex workers and so that means presumably i mean because the thing like a very very sort of crude way of putting it you sort of think there isn't a sort of pimp figure involved right so you've got someone who's a performer who talks directly to their audience they're doing it through the conduit of a website but i suppose if there aren't safeguards there, there's nothing to stop someone who is a mini industrialist of pornography setting up 20 different accounts with different people they are controlling and running it, you know, in a way that looks like they're not. I agree with you. Um, it's, it's really difficult to absolutely 100% ascertain whether the person you're watching really wants to be doing what they're mm. doing. A lot of people have tried to get around this, both studios and individuals, 
by talking at the beginning and at the end of a film about how much they enjoyed something or how much mm. they're looking forward to it, by uh, offering enthusiastic consent. But of course, you know, who's to say that behind the scenes that person isn't thinking, yeah, I, I'm 100% into doing this because I really fucking need the money and mm. my children are starving mm. and uh, this is the easiest way for me to pay my bills mm. and actually I wouldn't be here if I wasn't out of pocket. Mm. Ensuring that what you're watching is someone who really wants to be doing something and is enjoying every moment of it and that this is their calling, if you will, and, and it's their number one dream job and they wouldn't want to do anything else mm. and they'd probably do it voluntarily. Mm. That is probably quite utopian. However, that doesn't mean that there isn't a middle ground where people can create and others can consume sexual material that is largely celebratory and helpful to people and as healthy as it possibly can be if you want to try and make the stuff you're engaging with as decently indecent as it possibly can be then doing your research on ethical porn studios is a good place to start paying for your porn 100% a great thing to do going to performers directly, visiting their personal websites, if you find a particular performer or performers that you like, uh, watching their videos there, maybe even ordering custom clips, if you can afford it, something to be shot specifically for you, and being an ally and an activist as well. Part of being a conscientious porn or adult material consumer also involves thinking about those people's lives more largely finding out why a lot of adult performers advocate for the decriminalization of sex work and for the de-incarceration of sex workers who are in prison. Yes, it goes deep. I think modern man listeners have the depth to be able to handle doing their homework. And if you've got a question of sex for Alex to answer on a future edition of the show, what do you need to do with it? type in modernman.co.uk as ever with two n's and then hit the feedback button to submit your cue and i'll endeavor to give you an a and with that we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of the modern man but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador it's jenny in bath who wrote in to say ollie i just want to thank you for your podcast over the last 12 years i've always needed something to listen to in order to calm my brain and focus on sleep that was audiobooks as a child late night chat radio as a teen and now it's podcasts You've been in my ears with both Answer Me This and then The Modern Man, and I wanted to express my gratitude for that. Uh, Jenny, that is so kind. Thank you very much. A listener who is asleep is still a download in commercial impact terms. Uh, I now appoint you Manbassador for Bath. Congratulations. If you'd like to be a Manbassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line. Full details on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on the 10th of March. This is how we This is how we know. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.